Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on CV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the UK makes a new deal with France to tackle illegal migration. The Home Secretary insists there's not a backlog. Apparently, it's cute. Sturgeon's crocodile tears. The former First Minister of Scotland is grilled on her leadership during the Covid pandemic, saying, I was the best that I could be. An 11th hour protest outside of Downing Street from XL bully owners. From tomorrow, police will have the power to seize the dogs under new laws. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's another mammoth show for you tonight. We've got it all. I'm going to show you how to disarm an XL bully in full attack mode. We've got Harmony London, the gospel singer, told she wasn't allowed to sing this week by a volunteer policewoman. And I'll be asking why, four years after it happened, we still haven't got Brexit done. You better get ready for a thrilling two hours. It's like nothing else you've ever seen. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Fire up those rockets. Bon Nouvelle, uh, the Home Secretary, has signed a new plan with France to curb illegal migration across the tra Channel. Très magnifique. With surveillance drones, it's piece de resistance. But James Cleverley's tête-à-tête -tête with the chair of the Home Affairs Committee, Diana Johnson, about the asylum backlog earlier on, wasn't un grand success. Get a load of this. So that's the total number now of who is in the backlog, but we've recognised... Um, so you keep describing it as a backlog. But it's not a backlog. I'm sorry, I don't understand so why it, it's, it's not it's a backlog. The, it's the case... It's the case I mean, why is it not a backlog? Because you haven't dealt with them and people are waiting. Why is that not a backlog? Well, it's a queue. It's oh, it's a, a queue. Process. No, the point is... Yeah. No, but the point is... The point is, you, you can apply... Uh, I mean, if, I think your use of the word backlog implies something that I disagree with. Your use of the word backlog implies something that I disagree with, really. Well, um, there's many words you could use. Um, it's a bloody long queue, by the way. We've got 170,000 people supposedly in it. Let's get my panel's take on this. Deputy Political Director of The Sun, Ryan Saby, author and broadcaster Lucy Beresford, and columnist at Spikes Online, Ella Whelan. Very good evening to all of you. Um, you're not in a queue. It's not a backlog. You know, they've now decided just to reinvent the English language to try and get out of it, right? A fantastic form of words by James Cleverley. And James <laughs> Cleverley is normally pretty sharp in these situations. Yes. I think he even managed... I don't think he'd give himself 10 out of 10 on yeah. this one. But the, the trouble is, there is this 
a there is a backlog. Yeah. You know, they may call it a queue, or right. there's there's certainly but thousands. But this is modern of politics, isn't it? You know, call it something else, and you pretend it isn't what it actually is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he, he'd probably been better off if he'd gone in there and said, "Look, we are trying to deal with it. This yeah. is the situation. We've got it down from, for argument's sake, hundred thousand. There's now four thousand. This backlog queue. Right. Uh, that's the situation, and people would applaud him. Well, I think people would understand if he just admitted what it is that they've done here, which is not very much. And Rishi Sunak appears to have granted asylum to a load of people who were in the backlog, so they're not in it anymore. But, you know, to pretend that there isn't a backlog when everybody knows that the law was passed last year which would made it illegal to come here and seek asylum. Um, so all the people that have come here since that law was passed technically can't have asylum. So what, what are they doing? Well, this is, this is the trouble, and this is why Rishi Sunak wants those flights to get um, away as, as soon as possible. Um, but it seems that as soon as he does get that legislation through, <laughs> there is still going to be individual claims lodged yeah. through the court system, and it will take months and months. But it, it won't be a he, backlog, though. No, it, I'm, not, I'm trying to think of the right word. No queue, no backlog. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what People it will be. Waiting. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, why can't they just admit that they made a complete and utter dog's breakfast of it, and they're trying to fix it, but it's really difficult, and they're not really expected to get anybody sent to Rwanda at all. Well, you tell the truth. You say tomato, I say tomato. Yeah. It's all semantics. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, it's all smoke and mirrors uh. because there's a very strong possibility that none of those planes will ever take off the ground no. before a general election. That's the key, which, as many people are debating, is it going to be in May? Is it going to mm. be in November? The, the strong money is on it being in November to give this Rwanda policy a chance to get off the ground, pardon the pun, but it probably won't. No, it won't. I mean, I was talking to um, one of the lords uh, from the Conservative Party last night um, Ella, and he was saying, you know, this is likely to go on, this ping-pong between the House of Lords and the House mm. of Commons with the bill itself is going to go on for ages. So it'll probably beyond, be beyond Easter before that sees any possibility of becoming a proper law. And, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous now, isn't it? Well, I mean, this whole policy, the plan for the Rwanda scheme, has been a bit like that sort of exchange <laughs> around queue, waiting line, backlog. Mm. It's sort of... Well, it's a load of BS. I mean, it's just right. a, it's a, it's a trying to put lipstick on a pig because even if you did have the Rwanda bill sail through with no amendments, no lords kind of messing it up and sending it back and all the rest of it, even if it was totally intact and perfect, um, it, number one, the numbers on the planes aren't sufficient. No. So it's that it won't deal with the backlog or the queue anyway. And number two, the sort of the... The, the intricacies of the Rwanda plan, which is basically trying to pretend like there's a workaround yeah. for international courts and doing some things that are really quite dodgy, like basically saying to civil service, shut up and, you know, just don't, mm. don't worry that you might actually right. be getting into trouble. We've got your back, as if anyone would believe a minister right. saying that, um, means that it wouldn't work even if it was perfect. So it's just such a... There's so much sort of disingenuous rhetoric around this. Right. And... Actually, the news about cooperation with France is a good thing. I mean, I think that's what people have... We, we know that the solution to this is much more sort of mundane and sensible and almost technical and making sure that they there are sort of systems in place and cooperations in place. The sort of like flinging people on a barge or a boat, another mm. kind of semantics row, what did you call that Bibby Stockholm thing, um, was never going to work. The planes was never going to work. It's all just about the sort of boring sort of work of dealing with France, dealing yeah. with the sort of technicalities of stopping boats But again, way. I mean, this has been going on for years. You know, we've given France hundreds of millions of pounds of them to supposedly help stop people leaving. They haven't done it. No, we've given them 
best part of five hundred million pound. Yeah, and, right. and, yeah. uh, and what have we got in return? Not not a great deal. Got, maybe a little bit more cooperation. <laughs> We've got our um, our border force or our, our police into their into their control rooms. But it feels like we need our police actually patrolling the beaches yeah. and actually making sure they're you know going up and down the coastline to make sure that no one actually gets in. Oh, in there. we now have drones. Yes, the drones. They've suddenly discovered us. drones, haven't they? They've suddenly gone. Oh, I know. We can get some drones. Well, you know, it's twenty twenty four. Most people have got drones and had drones for quite some time. But it seems to me that, you know, again, they've just walked into a room and suddenly discovered that, you know, oh, Christ, it's a bad situation, this. How are we going to get out of it? But the problem is the people smugglers have drones as well because yeah. they're actually trying to work out where the police are. If they right. are patrolling on the beaches, they want to know mm. that in advance. So right. the people smugglers, are again, are ahead of the curve. Of course they are. They're very smart. And, and, and to break that model almost requires infiltration. You do wonder why we haven't actually broken that system, why we, mm. where we don't actually know who the people are. Yeah. Who are I mean, every now and again you see a case, don't you, of people being prosecuted and occasionally, you know, maybe half a dozen people a year um, get prosecuted and sent to prison. But this is like you're dealing with the mafia here. You're dealing with, you know, very, very serious criminals who have got an incredible network which gets everything from money to drugs to guns to, to dinghies smuggled all over the world. Yeah. You know, these people are smuggling... People into America, never mind smuggling them into Britain. So and, and Labour talk about trying to tackle the the gangs yeah. further further upstream, right. which then means you've then got to put a lot of resources and UK resources, UK police going mm. into mainland Europe, and that's going to be really really yeah. difficult. Especially and they're always one, they are always one step ahead. I mean, so. I mean, it seems to me, and I know there will be human rights lawyers who will shout me down. It seems to me the only way that you stop people coming here is to make it um, something that they shouldn't want to do. So that if they do arrive here, you put them into some kind of detention. I'm not suggesting, you know, um, some horrific kind of Devil's Island-style well, we, thing, but if they knew they were going to just get locked up and they wouldn't get out, they wouldn't, they'd stop coming, wouldn't well, they? Well, we, we did have detention centres in places like Yarlswood, which, I mean, the problem with Yarlswood was that, it one, people were there for inordinate amounts yeah. of time. I mean, inde with indefinable sentences, basically, and living in utter squalor, mm. so it was badly run and it was a bad system. But in the abstract, a, you know, not a hotel, there's all rows about whether or not it's cheaper to be right. in the Bibby Stockholm than to be in a well, hotel. Or in other words, just as expensive. Well, and, it's not cheap, yeah, whatever Yeah, the difference is about 20 quid or yeah. something like that. And, right. um, uh, but the, you know, if you just simply had a detention centre that was ready for people were had their cases open and shut as quickly as possible, that it was humane, that it was sort of a normal system that ran normally... Um, then the deterrent would be that the, that the system works and you don't and you don't get to play. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be this kind of draconian, outlandish, almost kind of ghost system that is the Rwanda plan. Yeah, right. It mm. could just be a sort yeah. of a yeah, well, bureaucracy that works properly. Haven't they? They've invented this overcomplicated sort of scenario, which they say will be the solution. But everybody really knows it won't be. Well, and also, it doesn't actually address one of the primary concerns that the electorate have, which is about legal migration, mm. the actual figures for right. that. And it, admittedly, most voters would tell you that actually what they're really concerned about is the cost of living. Yeah. But migration is creeping up that list mm. of... You know, well, I think it now. very much depends, and we've said this before, on, on where you live. If you're affected by mass migration, you're going mm. to be saying that the most, the most worrying thing that you've got to worry about is migration. I mean, those figures that came out yesterday saying we're going to have 70 million people here in two years' time, and that's on the basis that it's only 315,000 a year, which at the moment uh, is, a, is a very low number. And that's moment, what people want the government yeah, to sort out. Right. And the thing is, I've been saying this on the show last night, you know, for years I've been saying all of these things that, you know, people are coming here on student visas and staying, bringing dependents with them, all of it was being denied by, you know, these kind of, you know, do-gooder 
um, lawyers who want to save the world and say that all these people have got the right to come here. Oh, it's not true that the numbers are going to be that big. It's only because of Ukraine. It's only because, you know, it turns out that the, the, the Office for National Statistics has now told the truth about where we are. And 90-odd percent of people growing the population from this point on are immigrants. And you look, you look people at the don't want that. You look, look at the figures, even when it gets to 2027 or 2028, 20, you're still going to have 300,000 people, you know, net migration yeah. coming here a year, which is so much I, more. I think it'll be more than that. Which is so much more than that. Remember the tens of thousands yeah. that David Cameron promised? Well, in 2019, I should that. mention that it is the fourth anniversary of Brexit. Um, there are some people who don't want to talk about it, but I think we should, um, because it's just not happened, really, has it? And the fact is, is that in 2019, I think, the net migration figure was tiny. It was about 20,000. And it's suddenly now more than 10 times that every single year. And I think there was some relaxing of the rules under, yeah. under, under, with Boris Johnson, mm. and I think that just created more, you know, more and more, the conditions for more and more people to come over. And only now are you going to see you know, the partners of, uh, you know, of students not, coming, not right. coming over. So I think that might well, help things. Cleverly but should they, be in the, should they be in the figures in the first place? Yeah, right. Well, this is the thing. You know, one of the other things that we'll address later on is that another word that, that Cleverly doesn't like is missing. You know, because apparently there's 33,000 people from last year who have come illegally, who are by and large just kind of roaming around the country. Nobody knows exactly where they are because they might be in hotels, but they're allowed to go out of those hotels if they so wish. Um, that, I don't know if it was that same one. I think it was Tim Loughton, actually, the MP, who puts it to him that, you know, by the way, uh, what about all these people who are missing? And he says, oh, I wouldn't categorise them as missing. You know, it's, again, it's a sort of reinvention of the language to try to cover their backs up. But I think this is the important thing, is that, you know, in relation to Brexit, the, I the idea behind Brexit and immigration was about control. I mean, yeah. part of the mistake was, that was made, indeed, by this government, it was the idea that immigration was an issue and therefore we have to be really draconian right. and really crack down yeah. and be really anti-immigration. That's actually it's a much more complicated picture. I mean, if we had a booming economy and uh, housing was... You know, people were actually building houses mm. and there was, you know, things were happening in this country, then the numbers of... Um, in terms of the levels of migration, wouldn't be so stinging to people. The problem isn't actually mm. the immigrants coming in. The problem is the lack of resources. And I think the government gets let off the hook too much by people. I, I'm constantly round with people and saying it's not, it's not immigrants' fault, it's the government's fault, and let's not let them off the hook. But in relation to the whole sort of whether or not Brexit is working or not thing, I mean, number one, you're right, it hasn't really fully ever been implemented. No. But two, it was never a policy. This is what, and then everyone sort of rolls their eyes and says, oh, you're ridiculous. But it was never a policy that you could kind of tick and say, done. Right. It was a fundamental sh gear shift in British politics. Yes. And it was actually about a way of doing politics differently. Um, which, of course, because, you know, however many massive percent of politicians were Remainers and a, a big percentage of them were Ramonas, mm. was never going to happen. That, that ideal was never going to be realised. And that's a terrible shame because... I think, you know, we are worse off at, in, in many respects, and that's not Brexit's fault, that's our politicians' fault. Yeah, well, I is. think that is key. One of the other things, I think it's a mistake to always conflate migration with Brexit, because if you look at Europe as a whole, if you look at Italy, if you look at Germany, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, they are really struggling with yeah. issues around migration as well. And it isn't just about the changes that were wrought by Brexit. Is it, it is about wars in places like Syria or Afghanistan. It is about places like, uh, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia. Mm. 
that there's a geopolitical shift that is actually also causing a, a major flux of people wanting yeah. to change where they live. But I think also the more it happens, the more people are encouraged to join those who have already done it mm -hmm. because it looks like it could, could happen for them. So yeah. if you're living somewhere where you think you can have a better life, of course you're going to jump on a boat and come here if you want, mm -hmm. if you can. And that is, that is the problem. But we're out of time already. But don't worry, because we'll come back to it. Uh, we'll be able to talk about Brexit a lot more. And, of course, what on earth is going on uh, with this government, who don't seem to want to actually define anything with the correct word. Smashing right on through the night, though, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We head over the border following the trail of tears left by Nicola Sturgeon. She tries to wiggle out of a missing WhatsApps debacle. Plus, the young 20-year-old subjected to the authoritarian crime of, guess what? That's right, busking hymns. Do not move. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. What do you get when you cross a former First Minister and a COVID inquiry? Yep, you guessed it, crocodile tears. Nicola Sturgeon faced her toughest grilling to date as she was questioned over those deleted WhatsApp messages, her leadership style and pandemic political purposes. The former First Minister became teary-eyed when asked if she was a good leader. Let's have a look. I was the First Minister when... Uh, the pandemic struck, there's a large part of me wishes that I hadn't been, um, but I was, and I wanted to be the best First Minister I could be during that period. It's for others to judge the extent to which I succeeded. Well, it is for others to judge uh, to what extent she succeeded, and I'm going to say she didn't succeed very well, uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, the man joining me now may well agree, nightclub owner and columnist, Mr Donald McLeod, MBE. Welcome, Donald. Nice to see you. <laughs> Nice to see you, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm assuming that the whole nation was weeping in uh, in sympathy with Nicola Sturgeon today as they, <laughs> as they remembered how bloody awful it was to live there while she was in charge. Oh, it was awful back then. But, you know, I had to laugh today. You know, she arrives at this uh, the Edinburgh leg, uh, the COVID inquiry, with a chauffeur-driven car. And it turns out that the car didn't have an MOT, it had expired. Uh, so I thought that was some sort of, kind of a weird type of metaphor for uh, Nicola's performance today uh, or arrival at the, the COVID inquiry because it was definitely a car crash, that's for sure. I mean, it didn't have the the same underpinning of uh, two-faced foul mouth backbiting that maybe the, or the same amount that London had, but it certainly had its own uh, up here with uh, them all crawling all over each other, the clinical director, Jason Leach, Health Secretary, Jane Freeman, Freeman Hamza Yusuf, former Health Secretary, and now FM, Kate Forbes, who was probably the only honest one there, the not-so-honest uh, DFM, John Swinney, and uh, Liz Lloyd all trying their very best to cover up their secret shenanigans and meetings during the pandemic and get public caught out, absolutely hammered by the quite brilliant Casey, um, the ruthless Jamie Dawson here. Yeah. He was brilliant. So today was the big draw, the real deal, the meeting two veg of the inquiry, the former chief mammy of Scotland and the Nats, Nicola Sturgeon. And she was basically grilled and roasted during the whole day. You know, it was it was quite something to yeah. watch. Yeah, or even filleted, you might say, uh, if you were going to use some fish <laughs> analogies. But, I mean, the thing that's amazing to me uh, is that she has fallen from grace, I think, quicker than almost any political leader that I've ever seen. You know, because it was only really about a year or so ago, wasn't it, 
when people were talking about her right. being this amazing leader, that, you know, if only she was the Prime Minister of, of this country, if only, you know, she was the leader of the whole of the UK. When she turned up today and got out of that, you know, 2017 registered non-MOT-covered Audi estate car and sort of walked in, you just thought, she has literally become a shadow of her former self. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I don't think it's the quickest. I think Boris Johnson might take that one on possible of his trust. But uh, it, it was, you could see that she's very emotional. She'd obviously been up all night. Um, and, you know, there was a certain a small, very small degree of sympathy on that one. But, of course, as, it, as this inquiry un, unravels, uh, or, or goes on, you find out, you know, it's been lying on an industrial scale, or rather they've been certainly deleting their messages and their WhatsApps uh, on an industrial scale, and every one of them, and no more so than the, the former First Minister. I mean, I mean, she she said she didn't have a secret cabal, you know, uh, but she did, it's quite obvious, she denied what everyone else knew to be fact, that she'd embarked on a zero-COVID policy, she instead she was, had endorsed an elimination policy, not an eradication policy. Even the presiding judge, uh, Baroness Hallett, thought that was a word challenge, you know, and he said, you know, what's the difference between elimination and eradication? She, I mean, she was asked, you know, what measures she'd taken during the... Uh, what the measures had some impact kept COVID at the lowest level and uh, she said well it took fewer lives our measures and minimised the disruption of people's lives and well these measures certainly impacted in people's lives you know closing schools for the best part of two years with more lockdowns than any uh, country in Europe uh, and crippled our tourism and hospitality sectors. They're still not getting the help we should. She also denied using the pandemic as a political opportunity to prop up her own position in the support of independence and the breakup, obviously, of the UK. Well, you know, going back, that's when I, that's when I left the party because it was just definitely you doing that then. And then today, papers arrived saying uh, from June 2020, said clearly consideration should be given to restart an independence and uh, another referendum. Yeah. So quite clearly oh, yeah. lying I again. Mean, she was pulled... There's no question, Donald. Sorry, that, that, yeah, I was going to say, there's no question that she totally politicised what she was doing. We know from what she said about Boris Johnson that it was all about trying to get out on front, in front of him. Let's have a look at her talking about mm -hmm. uh, lockdown policy and why it happened the way it did. And I don't know that anybody can say with certainty what difference it would have made in the overall uh, trajectory of the pandemic and the outcomes of the pandemic. But... Of the many regrets I have, um, probably chief of those is that we didn't lock down a week, two weeks earlier than we did. I mean, you know, she says it won't make any difference. It's great, isn't it? All these bloody politicians telling us how sorry they are about how they got it wrong and how they were doing their best. And we were telling them all the way through, you can't do this, you can't wreck the entire economy. You can't close all the schools. You can't stop people from travelling. You can't ruin everybody's lives because in the end, the result will be the same. And that's now what everybody's agreeing. Well, pro you know, you know, but promising the nation, as she did in her daily doomcast, that, you know, she would keep the uh, the WhatsApps and keep the texts. And then, well, quite obviously, she didn't. She deliberately, in my view, 
discarded the evidence, deleted it, eliminated it, eradicated it, for want of a better word. You know, Colin Boris Johnson, a clown, and thought he was full, the, the, the wrong prime minister, full stop. That was quite telling when the KC asked her, you know, if she considered herself to be the right first minister for the job during the pandemic. Well, my view and the view of many others, she clearly wasn't. She'd lost the plot after getting, she got the trust of the nation. I would say maybe nearly 100% of people backed her at the beginning and then she started racing out the traps with her lockdowns, with her, you know, uh, roadmap to ruin um, and, and so on and so forth. And it became very obvious that she was acting in, the, in behalf of the nation or on behalf of the people. She was acting on herself. And, you know, and I was quite taken today where uh, the the statement of an of Jean Morrison of the Scottish uh, Bereaves Group, and she said, "Hubris does not stop a pandemic, but the yeah. story of COVID in Scotland is the story of the hubris of Nicola Sturgeon." Yeah. Well, that that got a reaction from the yeah. didn't didn't like that. Let me let me just it's interrupt true. you for a second. And it's a sad state of affairs. Uh, you know, we're in that situation. Yeah. Eighteen thousand Scots lost their life. Three and a half thousand um, uh, people are ranked have lost their lives by being shipped out of hospital without being tested mm. in their care homes. Somebody has got to take responsibility yeah. for that. You yeah. know, quite apart from losing businesses or uh, you know, nighttime economy falling flat. People died because yeah. they were oh, sent, yeah. they were shipped in mass to a hospital in a care home yeah. without any care or foresight mm. or any checks. That is a disgrace. It I'm is. sorry, it's and just also, wrong. Also, you've got to ask the question, why were all these WhatsApp messages deleted? Because on the one hand, you've got Nicola Sturgeon <laughs> saying uh, that she has great recollection of all of the messages that she sent and that she um, may or may not have unsent. But let's have a look at how she explained why she did actually get rid of some of them. And you knew at that point that those messages had been destroyed? I had, I knew, yes, that I had operated in line uh, with a policy uh, that I had operated in line with and advice that I had had from the outset of my time as a minister uh, to ensure that uh, conversations with uh, others in government with any uh, impact or relationship to government business shouldn't be kept on a phone that could be lost or stolen, but properly recorded. Yeah, so apparently it's not safe to keep messages on a phone, but it's OK to send them on a phone. I mean, you know, it's absolute yeah. gobbledygook, isn't it? It's complete rubbish. Also, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, people, are asking, people are asking questions in, in Scotland tonight, Donald, about what about the Alex Salmon trial? What about all of the uh, WhatsApp yes, messages? Yes, I was just about to come to that, you it's, know. Yes, yeah, that she after supplied. After the Alex Salmon trial... Sorry, after the Alex Salmon trial, I, I mean, it's been well known that all uh, WhatsApp messages seem to have been deleted and, uh, and gone, and that seems to have been a policy from that point onwards. So that was Amar Anwar asking the question, and he's representing the, the COVID Bereave group. Yeah. So there's, a, there's more questions than answers mm. yet again, and what are we after here? We're all after answers. We all want to know what happened, what went wrong, and move on, mm. but not without people that have really been guilty of, you know, incompetence or, you know, 
as I say, this people have shifted. They should be penalised. They should be certainly put up in front of a court to answer for some of the questions. But I do think it's criminal that these messages have been deleted, especially after they were warned. And so no excuse like that covers it. And then you've got burner phones as well. Yeah. I mean, it turns out, uh, you know, the two or three burner phones. Oh, no, I didn't use a burner phone. They say, well, how do we know? Yeah. We don't. And so there's no point saying that uh, Boris Johnson was a rogue and a terrible prime minister, blah blah, blah and a liar. When we're doing exactly, we're yeah. just doing exactly the same up here. I'm sorry, she's toast now. I yeah. mean, it's it's she's it's, finished. Yeah, there's no damning. question. No question, Donald. Listen, we're out of time, I'm afraid. But listen, very, very interesting to talk to you. There's going to be more to come, I'm sure. And we'll keep talking about yeah, it as well. Um, but we will see you soon, I'm sure. Donald McLeod, uh, MBE there. Not happy at all with the way that things have been run up in Scotland by Nicola Sturgeon when she was in charge during COVID and beyond, of course. Now, taking over the airwaves, this is the invasion that is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, we talked to the lady who was mocked by the police and had the Human Rights Act thrown at her for the apparent cardinal sin of, yeah, wait for it, singing hymns. Utterly ridiculous. Public. We like to champion the stories of everyday Brits and be their voice. No more clear than last week when we brought you the story of Brendan Kavanagh, the cancelled piano man. Well, tonight we're bringing you Harmony London's story, a Christian gospel singer who regularly performs worship music to passing shoppers on Oxford Street and has more than 300,000 subscribers on YouTube. But she was stopped on Sunday by a volunteer police officer and told she was not allowed to sing church songs outside of church grounds before... The police officer in question stuck her tongue out at her. Let's have a look. Uh, religion you're allowed to do anywhere. No, miss, you're not allowed you are. to sing ch you uh, are. church you are. songs outside of church grounds, by the way. You're not allowed to sing church songs outside, outside of... Outside of church songs uh, or uh, church grounds. That's fine, that's You're not fine. allowed, she just said you're not allowed to sing church songs outside of church. Our church of, outside of church grounds, unless you have... a. Unless That's you've been authorised no, no. by the church to do this, this kind of song. Not saying anything anymore, thank Are you saying that you don't care about the human rights act? You're lost? Unbelievable, isn't it? Well, now the Metropolitan Police have piped up and apologised. Here's what they said. The officer was mistaken in saying church songs cannot be sung outside of church grounds. We're sorry for the offence caused and we'll take the learning forward. Whatever that means. Well, I'm delighted to say that Harmony London joins me now in the studio. Harmony, welcome to the Thank Independent you. Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you so much for coming in. I mean, I think everybody I've spoken to and everyone that we've played that to has mm. been totally shocked yeah. that somebody like you who's sitting, playing in public, beautiful music, singing with your beautiful voice that you've got, and this maniacal sort of part-time volunteer police officer mm. comes up and starts talking to you as if you're doing something criminal. Yeah. I mean, you must have been pretty shocked when it happened. I was. I was completely in shock, especially the way it was explained to me, you're not allowed to sing church songs outside of church. Mm. I was, yeah, I felt just wrong. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously people were around watching this whole thing. It went on, I'm told, for about sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, right? And so yeah. she was trying at one point to confiscate your equipment and all sorts. Well, yeah, she was basically saying that if I don't, leave mm. then she's going to seize my equipment and everyone around was just absolutely outraged right and you were in oxford street 
middle of the afternoon, very busy place to be. Yeah. Presumably you've been there quite a few times before, so yeah. is it like your patch? Is that where you sit? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people like will ask me, oh, I need to come and see you. They'll come there specifically to okay. see me. Okay. All right. And and do you have a sort of regular set of tunes that you that you sing or do you, you know, do new ones? Do you do old ones? Um, yeah, I have a few favourites. I'm going to be actually recording them and releasing them as well. Oh, good. Because, I mean, with a bit of luck, this publicity for you is going to mean something good for you, because it might mean... Because you have... We're going to hear your voice in a little while. But you've got an amazing voice, and, and you know, you. it's not easy performing in public, because you never... I mean, you're in a place where anything can happen. You're, you're in a public space. Mm. You don't really know. But I presume most of the time, people just come up and they're pretty nice to you. Yeah, all the time. I get lovely responses. I do post all my reactions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, how did it end? I mean, we saw her sticking her tongue out. I'm not quite sure what she meant by that. I don't know why she thought that was a, an appropriate thing to do. Mm. But, I mean, the whole thing is, the encounter is just really odd, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, after I packed up, uh, I was just standing there and she actually told me that I'm not allowed to stand there and I have to leave right now. Mm. She was like... Um, so are you leaving now? Right. So I just kind of felt like the whole thing was quite intimidating for me. Yeah, and she had another police officer with her who yeah. didn't seem to be doing very much of anything. No, I actually posted what he was saying as right. well. And so he what was, was he saying? So he was just being very sarcastic. Mm. He was just like, I'll go and catch some criminals then, shall I? Because people were saying, yeah. why don't you catch some criminals instead of... Some real of... criminals, yeah. Yeah, and he was like, all right then. So that's... Very weird. And, I mean, how long had you been there when they... When they when they turned up, uh, about ten minutes. No, not so. Not, not very long. long. Right. Not that long. And I mean, there are other buskers. I mean, I wouldn't call you a busker because mm. you, you're 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 sort of much more than that. But you know, there are places where you can play music in public. There's places mm. on the underground. They've got little you know delineated spots where people can go. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you've got no reason to think that there's any bylaw that stops you from doing it, right? I mean, I'm actually sharing the gospel, which is like part of my human rights. If yeah. you check Article 9, Article 10, I'm completely within my rights mm. to do so. So, that's yeah. And so you got into this when and, and how long ago and how long have you been doing this? this so I've been, I previously have been singing while I was younger, mm. um, but I've been doing gospel for about a year and a half now. Okay. And the response has been amazing. Right. Everyone loves it. And why have you chosen to sing those kinds of songs? I just want to spread love and positivity and... We could do with some. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, the world is a pretty dark place at times, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So, so um, are you attached to a church, as it, as it were? Do you play in a church at all? Um, I, do go to I do go to church, but I'm not attached with a church. Okay. And when did you learn to play the piano? How did, how did that happen? I've been playing piano since I was about seven. Okay. So, yeah. Right. And to a very high standard, right? You went to college and everything? Uh, yeah, I did my... Grades. Yeah, okay. And so, what sort of a reaction have you had from the general public? I mean, you've got 300,000 um, followers on YouTube, mm. um, uh, subscribers. That's a big audience. Yeah. Has anything happened? Has anyone been in touch with you to say, you know, maybe you should record something? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm getting a really positive. A lot of people are, you know, supporting me, mm. um, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Because um, yeah. also you gave it back to her. I mean, you said, didn't you, in the, in the, on the video that we saw that, you know, don't you believe in the Human Rights Act? Because you knew that you had the right to be able to, to do what you were doing. Um, I mean, the thing for me is when she was asked, so you don't care about human rights, she stuck out her tongue. Yeah. I feel like that was just 
like, yeah, that was just really rude, apart from anything else. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, and since we've now found out that she's a volunteer police officer, apparently these people can just get jobs for the police. They don't get paid, but yeah. they get a reduction in their council tax. They get free travel on TFL, oh. um, so she can travel around London for nothing. But nobody knows how many of these people there are. I mean, I don't know how many people like her are wandering around the streets with those kind of powers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, it's worrying, isn't it? Have you got a, a, um, a plan to, to... I mean, do you do it every day or do you just do it the weekends? Um, yeah, I do it as often as I can. Mm. Because I, I really enjoy it, to be yeah. honest. And I like to touch people and, you know, give them hope, build up. It's to, like, give hope to people, even believers, non-believers. Right. It touches everyone. Yeah. And I get a lot of messages or, yeah, I get a lot of testimonies sent to me. And it's right. just, yeah. It's and, like, I mean, what would, you, what would your hope be then for, I mean, I know this is going to be a big question, yeah. for, you know, you want people to be more loving with each other, to get on better with each other. Is there a message? Because here you are, you've got a big audience here now, you can give us a message to, to feel better about ourselves. I would say just be faithful. Because, and also, just... I don't even know how to put it into words, but what I can say is I never really kind of wished bad on her ever, even while she yeah. was, like, intimidating me and kind yeah. of belittling me. I never wished bad on her, and I was always polite to her. Yeah. So just if you could take from that. Yes, just get on with people a bit better. Well, we're going to go to a little break. But before that, I'd love it if you could uh, give us a little demonstration of your singing voice, because it is so lovely. Yes. Would you like to? What are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing The Bridge of Oceans. OK, go for it. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of a mother. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, we all know that politicians are not like the rest of us. I mean, they can't be, can they? They inhabit a relatively surreal world where they get invited to hundreds of free rubber chicken lunches and dinners, where they can drink subsidised alcohol at their place of work, where they can summon up helpers to do everything from call them a taxi to organise a viewing of a flat in London that someone else will eventually pay for. It wouldn't be fair to say that all politicians are out of touch with the rest of the country, but it's certainly starting to look a bit that way. As Rishi Sunak clamps down on teenagers who vape and Sir Keir Starmer busies himself pretending that the woke world doesn't exist, We've had two examples just today of the weird way that some of them speak. Take the Home Secretary, James Cleverley. He was appearing before the Home Affairs Select Committee answering questions about the levels of immigration and the state of the asylum policy currently being practised by the government. It turns out that over 33,000 people have arrived on our shores since last year when the Illegal Migration Act was passed, which makes it um, illegal to claim asylum here. The vast majority of them are not detained anywhere and are effectively free to roam around the country without any checks as the process to ban them from claiming asylum is underway. 
asked by Conservative MP Tim Loughton whether he was comfortable with so many people being at large and even missing, here's what he said. I don't agree with the word missing. Uh, I, think, I, think that word, I think that word implies something which, which doesn't reflect the, the circumstances. Um, but, I mean, the, the point is, of course, I'm not comfortable with many of the numbers that were discussed, which is why, we're, which is why I've just come back from France working with our French counterparts to dry and um, uh, end people arriving on small boats, uh, reduce uh, illegal migration coming to the UK in its totality. So I'm not comfortable with, with a lot of the figures that we're discussing. We're doing something about it. He just can't quite seem to bring himself to say the words that we're all shouting. They're not disengaged from the process. They're bloody missing. No-one knows where they are. The same affliction seems to have affected Nicola Sturgeon today at the COVID inquiry up in Edinburgh. The former First Minister floundered around under questioning by Jamie Dawson, KC, who asked her why she had promised not to delete any messages at one point, appearing close to tears. She even tried to argue that she didn't delete them. Have a look at this. I was very thorough, and not just in the pandemic, but in all my work in government to ensure uh, that things were appropriately, appropriately recorded, but in line with the advice I'd always been given since my first day in government, properly, probably, was not to retain uh, conversations like that on a phone that could be lost or stolen and therefore not secure. But did you delete them? Uh, yes. <laughs> Apparently the WhatsApp messages weren't deleted, they just weren't retained. Her words. What is it with these people? Why can't they speak in plain language? And why can't they own up when they make mistakes? Nicola's appearance was an absolute car crash, as was Cleverly's. Isn't it time we got some politicians who just give it to us straight? Now, of course, lots of you have been getting in touch. Let's have a look at what you have to say on the stories that we are covering tonight. Uh, and on Nicola Sturgeon uh, choking back tears, as she said, uh, there was a large part of me who wished she was not First Minister during COVID. David says, crocodile tears, all of that power and control. She was absolutely loving it. BB says, crying all the way to the bank. Well, I don't know about that. GD says, people aren't held accountable for what they would rather have done. They are accountable for what they actually did. SA, perhaps rather unkindly. Weeping, wee Jimmy Cranky. GL says, I'm pretty sure the feeling is mutual if you ask the Scottish people. A large part of them wish that too. And Sean says, the absolute trauma of being paid massive amounts of taxpayers' money and partying while making those same taxpayers stay at home while their family members died alone in hospital. My heart bleeds for old Cranky. And finally, GF says, she was a happy tyrant. Now, another story that we're going to be talking about coming up a little bit later on in the show is about the BBC. Um, we asked you, following the latest allegations around a cover-up of that Martin Bashir interview with Princess Diana, can the BBC still be trusted? I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you fans of the BBC. Uh, yes, they can be trusted, 4%. No, they can't be trusted, 96%. And that is a pretty big number. Carl says the BBC has lost all credibility in all regards. It's time for the BBC to go. David says they're so corrupt, they need to be, uh, there needs to be an external investigation. Scrapping the licence fee is now a must. Thomas says it's hard to understand why British people ever thought government-owned media could ever be trusted. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? And Jade says they couldn't be trusted before the new allegations. Why are we still paying for them? 
Absolutely incredible. NJ says it's time it was turned into a subscription channel. Well, we'll get stuck into that story uh, in a little while. But let's now talk about man's best friend because it's crunch time for vicious XL bully dogs today as the band comes into force at midnight. Owners are set to face criminal records and hefty fines for continuing to own and breed these vile beasts. In a last-ditch attempt to change the looming law, distraught owners marched outside number 10 in solidarity tonight. And joining me now is expert dog behaviourist Stan Rawlinson. Stan, a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic. Yeah, good evening, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, there's an awful lot of sort of uh, noise... Uh, and fury around this story. A lot, of, a lot of people who own these dogs say it's ridiculous that they're being picked on, that, you know, all sorts of dogs can do all sorts of terrible things. But surely the point about these dogs is that they are built, basically, to kill people, aren't they? The difficulty is the size of them, Mike. Uh, and the other thing is they've been messing about. There wasn't a problem with these dogs until three and a half years ago. I've assessed them many, many times uh, over a lot of years when I uh, was working full-time as a, uh, as a behaviourist, specialising uh, in aggression. And I had to assess all these dogs. No problems with these XL bullies till three and a half, four years ago. So what's happened? They've messed about with the bloodlines. They've messed about uh, with the genetics, mm. using illegal genetic materials uh, and we end up with a situation like that we have at this moment in time yet they were perfectly okay from 1980 onwards when we were first created mm. so do you think it's the sort of the crossbreeding and the and the deliberate sort of manipulation if you like of their uh, of their dna that's caused them to be even more dangerous than they would have been you're absolutely right it is uh, the dna Part of it is really important. There was a there was a program on uh, on television, uh, a, a panorama type uh, mm. program on skies. It happens, and um, they showed a man getting uh, genetic kits and taking the sperm and the eggs and manipulating them. And he had uh, lots and lots of these XL bullies in cages around him while he was doing all this. And they showed him trying to manipulate the DNA. But not only that, they then started breeding some of these dogs from a specific bloodline. Right. And they were breeding both uh, brothers and sisters together on a regular basis which causes, of course, mental problems and no circumstances. And they did it for quite a few times. And to do that would cause an instability in that dog. And I think that may have occurred in this case. I've been calling for a ban uh, on all imports from dogs from America uh, for quite some time because of what they've been doing with the hybrids and the bloodlines. And... Uh, uh, I think that's what unfortunately happened with these dogs who were perfectly OK up until two and a half, three years ago. So, in your view, this has happened by somebody's deliberate act. This is not an occasional kind of accident that's happened. Somebody has taken a decision to make this dog a new breed, effectively. Yeah, I think it's not just one person. I think it's a group of people uh, not always acting together, but actually have created uh, something that has made it incredibly dangerous. Yeah. These dogs are not... 
most aggression in dogs is fear-based. A lot of people are not aware of that. They think it's, uh, it's all to do with dominance. It's all to do with uh, them trying to uh, uh, become the leader of the pack and that sort of thing. Not so. Nearly all of it is fear-based and it's created in the first 16 weeks of that dog's life. These dogs are not fear-based in any way or form and it wouldn't have mattered what happened in the first 16 weeks of their life. These dogs are predatory chase aggressive and you, by just even looking at it, running, screaming or whatever, could stimulate it into an attack. And that's what the problem is. And that's why we've had so many deaths, 75% right. more uh, 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 from XL bullies than any other dog breed in the last three and a half years. Mm. It's absolutely, uh, it, 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 it's a disaster. Yeah. And it's such a shame because there weren't a bad dog before that. Yeah, it is a terrible shame, but I really appreciate you coming on, Stan. And I know uh, you've got some tips for us. We haven't got time to do those, but we will do them because I think it'd be important if we could share what you know about what people should do uh, if they actually get attacked by one of these things because it could actually happen to them. Stan, thanks very much indeed. Stan Rawlinson there uh, with the lowdown on why this XL bully problem is such a problem because it's been created by, guess what? By men, by people by someone who wanted deliberately to create a dangerous new breed for power and money. The old story. Coming up, though, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, and we are taking no prisoners. Next, excuses galore as Martin Bashir blames racism for one of the longest cover-ups in British history. Plus, why Britain is taking the plunge, sending warplanes to the Red Sea. The afterburners are on. It's all coming next. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and, of course, we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the BBC is facing accusations of a cover-up after it was forced to release over 3,000 emails related to Martin Bashir's interview with Princess Diana. The broadcaster spent 150,000 quid, by the way, trying to keep the document secret. Plus, President Biden is criticised for his slow response to the drone strike that killed three US soldiers and injured dozens more in Jordan. And firefighters in London dealt with blazes caused by battery-powered vehicles every other day last year as Talk TV reveals the stark rise in potentially deadly incidents. 
Welcome back. You're watching the ever-patient Independent Republican Mike Graham here on Talk TV. Now, it was just four short years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. London streets were awash with people celebrating, waving flags, singing, drinking, and generally partying like there was no tomorrow and no hangover. The trouble is, of course, that we're still stuck in the biggest hangover we have ever had collectively as a nation. After the Tory triumph of the previous month, Boris Johnson swept to power thanks to one of the biggest Conservative landslides in their history. The people had voted and the people had won. Boris was elected as Prime Minister on the promise to get Brexit done. Unfortunately, we're still waiting. Watching the events in Northern Ireland unfold this week serves as a rather depressing reminder that despite Windsor frameworks, power sharing and borders in the sea, people who voted to leave the European Union still haven't really got what they wanted. It's now nearly eight years since the referendum result indicated that the British public wanted to get out of the European Union, for which the EU and continental Europe has never actually forgiven us. Only last week, the French authorities intervened to block a move to make it easier for Brits to spend more time in their Gallic holiday homes. And Brussels are still licking their lips at the prospect of Sir Keir Starmer winning the next election so they can move back to what they call closer cooperation on trade. Sir Keir, after all, was the guy who wanted a second referendum after he lost the first one. Now, I remember thinking... We were all at the beginning of a very exciting time for this country as I toasted good friends and the future at a party in Piccadilly on the night of January the 31st. Obviously, nobody could have foreseen the two years of COVID distractions that began less than two months later. Neither could we have predicted the complete collapse of our border security, where millions of people have entered this country both legally and illegally. And we don't really even know who many of them are. But don't make the mistake of assuming that we made the wrong move. Looking at our European neighbours across the Channel, things are looking pretty desperate for them too. French farmers are talking of laying siege to Paris and starving the people out. The Netherlands are having the same problems. And in Germany, their economic growth has never been more stagnant. Add to that, a load of nationalist anti-EU politicians getting elected as MEPs this year might even signal the beginning of the end for the European superstate. There's no doubt that the EU and German Chancellor Angela Merkel started the rot that brought us mass migration more than a decade ago. But lily-livered Tories, Theresa May and an establishment chock full of Ramonas have conspired to stop Brexit actually happening. The judiciary, the civil service, the banks, and not least the House of Lords are all in the way of the democracy that this country voted for. And until the status quo is challenged by good people who know what they're doing, it's never going to change. Now, coming up later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And it's quite an interesting little story we've got here because it turns out uh, that the striking train drivers are demanding even more money, right, for using iPad-style tablets while they're at work. The devices are supposed to be used by drivers so they can be notified about speed limits and safety checks on various routes. But, of course, um, the militant union chiefs at Aslef are saying, oh, no, we couldn't possibly be given another piece of equipment without being given even more money. So apparently there's around 1,500 tablets sitting around waiting in a warehouse. They won't be sent out until a deal can be done. Aslef has already infuriated loads and loads of passengers because they've been on strike since Monday, a sort of a nine-day rolling strike, which is affecting all sorts of people in all sorts of parts of the country. Yesterday, uh, it was the north of England that they were striking. If like the day before that, it was the south of England. Um, it's basically a complete 
and utter shambles. Ministers and train companies have so far reached agreements with the RMT, the TSSA and Unite. It's only ASLEF that for some reason can't seem to get a grip. Shocking, isn't it? We'll have more uh, from all of the papers coming up a little bit later on, of course, when we get to the panel, when they come back in. But let's talk about the BBC, because the BBC have spent £150,000 allegedly covering up a cover-up of a cover-up. It's the broadcaster's Watergate moment. And I'm talking about the crooked means by which Martin Bashir secured an interview with the future Queen, Princess Diana, at the time. But alas, what is done in darkness must come to light. An inquiry in 2021 found Bashir guilty of deception. Fast forward to today and an FOI request by journalist Andy Webb led to the release of 3,000 heavily redacted files surrounding the infamous Panorama episode. So really, it's difficult to decipher who knew what and when. But what really blows me away is that in one of the released emails from 2020, Bashir played dumb and claimed that the intense media scrutiny was due to jealousy and racism, not the fact that he forged documents. Now, Andy Webb spoke to Talk TV earlier today, suggesting the BBC managers in 2020 tried to cover up Bashir's actions in 1995, an accusation the BBC denies. What I'm most interested in is what senior BBC executives were actually doing back in 1996, but more importantly, what they were doing in 2020, because the cover-up that I say now exists was uh, devised, planned, enacted by the people who are literally running the BBC today. This isn't a, a rehash of something that happened you know, 29 years ago. It's not to find out more about Bashir's bank statements and what he actually said to Diana and so on and so forth, which was awful. This is to determine something that happened in 2020. And as I say, by, by people who are actually still running the organisation today. And it is only by getting to see what is actually behind all these, these thousands of redactions that we will really know. I'm now joined by former BBC Royal Correspondent Michael Cole. Michael, very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I mean, it's hard to imagine how much the BBC tried to keep this all quiet. You know, it's easy for people to, to judge in retrospect, and I know that hindsight is a brilliant thing, but, I mean, surely the least the BBC should have done was knowing that this uncovered, um, uh, hor horrific situation uh, was now wide open, that they should have then done their level best to try and find out themselves, surely, what had been going on and who had been responsible, instead of which they've sort of Michael, tried to stop it. This, yeah, Michael, this whole affair stinks to high heaven, mm. and that stench is going to follow the BBC into the negotiations for the renewal of the Royal Charter by which it lives in 2027, unless it deals with it and goes the hangout route, mm. shows some of the transparency it's always talking about, and deals with it honestly and with integrity. Uh, there is uh, a tremendous difference between issuing redacted pages, some of them whole pages redacted, names, whole sentences. That is not the way to deal with this. The thing couldn't be worse if they actually made everything public. A few people might have been embarrassed, but what we're talking about here is the integrity, the reputation and the future of the BBC. And you know, Mike, who I think about at this moment, Matt Wiesler, he was a South African 
talented uh, dire director and, and uh, creator of uh, online documents. And he was ordered by Bashir to create fraudulently the fake bank, bank statements, which Bashir used yeah. to get into the confidence of Princess Diana. Now, when that came out, he, Wiesler, was blamed, although he was following Bashir's orders. The BBC, without him knowing it, blacklisted him. Mm. He had no work. His life was ruined. He had to be, leave his home. He was one of the casualties. But the big casualty in this is the truth and the reputation of the BBC. Mm. And to hear Martin Bashir playing the race card today, well, I'm afraid it, it just smacks of desperation uh, when you realize what has gone on. This is the worst scandal that the BBC has ever encountered. And if it doesn't deal with it now, it will pay the price. It has already paid it when you read out those poll figures about people trusting the BBC. Well, you know, it breaks my heart. I worked for the BBC for more than 20 years, more than a fifth of its, its existence. And everywhere I went around the world, it was respected for its integrity, for its honesty, for its plain dealing. Well, that is not the case now. And that goes right to the top. And another thing, Mike, uh, which your previous uh, correspondent didn't talk about, the man who's actually pushed this forward, Andy Webb. Um, on the 20th anniversary of the now infamous interview with Princess Diana, the BBC ran a program, a self-congratulatory program, uh, which said how wonderful they'd been to get this great scoop. I remember watching it. There was Tony Hall, the uh, head of news and current affairs, talking about going down to this secret hotel room in Eastbourne, and watching the rough cut of the film, and walking on the beach with his acolytes saying, isn't it fantastic? Did she really say that? Isn't it amazing? Those people were congratulating themselves only eight years ago. And then it all came out, and we had Lord Dyson's report, which made the matter clear uh, how much uh, trickery, chicanery, and dishonesty there had been in the obtaining of that interview. Yes. It is extraordinary, isn't it? And, and of course, we've now got to the point where William, um, the future king and the current Prince of Wales, has said that he never wants them to show that interview again. I presume they won't be stupid enough to do that. But clearly, Bashir is a very troubled individual because, you know, he comes across as a man who will literally say anything to get out of a jam. Well, I knew him quite well. I knew him before he became famous or infamous. He used to haunt my office. He was working on another story, and he thought I had information that he could use. Yeah. Uh, and I, I got to know him reasonably well. Um, he, uh, his father was a Pakistani who joined the Royal Navy. I think he became a petty officer or something of that nature. Mm. And he grew up in southwest London. He joined the uh, Harlequins Rugby Club. He was in probably their seventh 15. And he worked his way up. And he was in Panorama. He was never a staff member. And I think that that's important to say. I was a staff, <laughs> a, foot, a foot soldier for the BBC for 20 years and, and three months. Right. He, was, he was a freelance. And also when we're considering this, we ought to consider the man who was the editor of Panorama at the time, Steve Hewlett. Mm. Well, he's unfortunately a dead poor man, but there are journalism prizes named after him. And he was in charge of that. And anybody who came to him uh, raising doubts about the methodology and what was in the program and how it had been obtained uh, was told to go away in no uncertain terms mm. in some old-fashioned uh, plain English 
a language. Uh, what about him? And it does go right to the top. Yes. These uh, these emails which have been redacted. Uh, the BBC says, well, they're they're irrelevant. Well, if they are irrelevant, let us make the judgment on that. Let them be discharged. Let yes. them be discounted completely. But the matter is so serious for the BBC, it goes to the, its very heart, to its credibility and to its reputation, that it cannot be, they cannot be plain enough. The damage has been done. Anything that happens now can only make things better. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, you talk about Martin Bashir being a sort of, uh, you know, quite an ambitious character, nothing particularly wrong with that. But I mean, could there be any truth to what he said, that people were a bit resentful that he had managed to get this interview because surely if that was the case there would have been more of an inquiry as to how he'd managed to do it yeah in every newsroom there's competition and people uh, watch each other and healthy competition is absolutely nothing wrong with it but i'll tell you one thing i mean when when all this was happening the bbc rehired him from america first as religious correspondent then they promoted him to be religious editor well let me just tell you on the 20th anniversary of the tragic death of Diana, Princess of Wales, in Paris, uh, he was doing a programme. He asked me to do, uh, to be, give an interview. I went to see him. I was absolutely shocked because he was working not for the BBC. He was working for ABC of America, American Broadcasting Corporation. And I said, Martin, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're the religious editor of the BBC. And yet you're working for the Americans. He yeah. said, shh, shh. And then he, 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 he later, uh, he knew I was going to a lunch at Broadcasting House mm. um, for an anniversary of John Simpson. He'd been there for so many, many years. I was invited to the lunch. And he, he sent me a, a memo saying, please don't tell anybody uh, that I was working for ABC. Right. Well, the deceit goes on, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely right. And, I mean, that's the other thing about the BBC, with its current sort of incumbents running it, seems to fall from one scandal to another. You know, I can't remember the last time there was a good story about the BBC, you know, whether it's Gary Lineker, whether it's them trying to put the, uh, the price of the licence fee up, whether it's about the news department being completely biased towards the, the conflict in Israel and Gaza. You know, there just seems to be one brick bat after another. It doesn't seem to get any better for them. Well, you know, I was uh, one of my last jobs at the BBC was uh, the arts and media correspondent. I think I've got about 14 people doing that job now. I'm just wondering who Tim Davey, the present director general, who was a marketing man and probably a very good one, but never, never, never a journalist, hasn't spent one day in a newsroom in all his life. I'm wondering who he's taking advice from, because it's plain to me and it's plain to you what should be done. And if we, if our councils had been listened to even a few years ago, perhaps this would not have happened. But it did happen. And the BBC went on covering it up and covering it up until they could do no more. They had to appoint Lord D Dyson. He got into the whole thing. And yet there is more to come. And Andy Webb has made a heroic efforts to find out the whole truth of it, not for his own self-aggrandizement at all. It's for the importance, is the integrity and the future of the BBC, which has played a very large part in this country's life for the last 101 years. We deserve the truth. There's no point holding back now. The situation is so bad, it couldn't be worse. Tell the truth. Let's have this much-vaunted transparency, which is always talked about. Let's have it here and now on this very important matter. Yeah, very well said, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Cole, former BBC royal correspondent on the dreadful 
dreadful shame that Martin Bashir has brought on the BBC, a once renowned and brilliant broadcasting organisation, which I'm afraid now um, has just lost its reputation, not only here, but all over the world, I'm afraid to say. Let's talk about something else, though, because Britain is preparing to finally send an aircraft carrier to the Red Sea following escalating tensions in the area, following repeated missile strikes by Houthi rebels in Yemen. It comes after US President Joe Biden says he has now decided how the US will respond to a drone strike that killed three American troops in Jordan at the weekend. Well, joining me now live from Nashville is Fox News commentator Tommy Lawrence. Tommy, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Delighted that you could join us. Uh, I think it's the first time we've had you on, so, uh, so a very good evening to you. Um, Joe Biden has finally decided to do something. I mean, I'm not expecting him to tell us what he's going to do, but does anybody really believe he's going to do something akin to what Donald Trump did and actually take out one of these people? Uh, no, and I would also go on to say that all Joe Biden has warned Iran for the last several months has been one word, don't. Well, apparently those in Iran don't understand the word don't and they don't understand Joe Biden because Iran has done whatever it has wanted to do because our president is weak. And it's quite obvious to the world. It's obvious to our allies. It's quite obvious to our enemies. And, you know, this really started with disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. That really was yeah. the beginning of the decline of the Biden administration. But the world sat back and they watched the Afghanistan botched withdrawal under Joe Biden. And then after that, they watched him coddle Iran. They watched him unfreeze sanctions to Iran, therefore funding them. They've watched his every move. They've watched a Chinese spy balloon circulate the United States for a week before it was shot down. So our enemies are obviously very emboldened. They know that this president isn't going to do anything beyond slipping, uh, slurping a smoothie and telling our enemies, don't. Well, unfortunately, our enemies don't understand don't, and they don't understand Joe Biden, and they certainly know where he stands, and that's on very shaky ground, both figuratively and literally. Well, that's right. And it's dangerous for the United States of America and for the rest of the world if you've got a US president to whom nobody pays any attention. I mean, I'm told that when he went to Saudi Arabia, he was more or less having to sort of beg for an audience with the, uh, with the crown prince. And, you know, the view in Saudi Arabia was, well, you know, we don't really need America. but they can, It's almost like we can keep them in a waiting room. We'll meet them when we're ready. Yeah, of course. And, you know, contrast that to former President Donald Trump. You know, like Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, it really doesn't matter. No foreign wars under Donald Trump, decimated ISIS under Donald Trump, took out terror leaders under Donald Trump, because Donald Trump could utter a word like don't, and the world would listen because Donald Trump was not to be messed with. He did what he said he was going to do. The world was on alert. Our allies were comforted. Our enemies were terrified. They respected Donald Trump because under Donald Trump, you had peace through strength. But Joe Biden, he hands them a blank check that they undoubtedly use for terrorists and terrorist proxies, and then he expects them to be fearful. If we're worried about Iran and other you know, terror countries getting a nuclear weapon, well, they're going to do that under a President Joe Biden, because they know that that's the easiest time to do it. And also look no further than our wide open southern border. You don't even have to attack our soldiers. You can attack us through our wide open southern border and you can send your terrorists and your terrorist 
proxies right on, up and through into our country, and Joe Biden won't do anything about it. So it's weakness on every level, at every stage, and the world knows that if Donald Trump is reelected, which we hope he will be, that their time for doing this is very limited. That's why they're striking now, so don't expect it to end anytime soon. No, exactly right. And is there any fear that Joe Biden, in his foreign policy decision-making, is going to be doing things that he thinks might help him at the election? Is it going to be possible for him to kind of behave as if he was a, pro a president without thinking about getting re-elected? No, I don't think so. I think some things will, will happen as far as maybe gas prices, inflation, interest rates, things that he can manage and things that he can manipulate. But when it comes to our position on the world stage and our position with our allies and with our enemies, I don't think that there's anything that Joe Biden could do at this point, even if he was trying to manipulate the public favor or put out the perception of being strong. I don't think he has it in him. And I think he's also compromised. If you look at the investigations into his family and his, his foreign business dealings as they relate to Hunter Biden, yeah. I think this man is wholly compromised. He's weak. And that's a combination that really doesn't give Americans or the world much comfort. Right. And let me just not let you go before asking you about Taylor Swift, because I saw uh, you were talking to uh, Sean Hannity the other night on Fox. Um, he was concerned that, you know, Taylor Swift's going to try and endorse Joe Biden again. I quite liked what you had to say. Tell us what you said. Well, listen, I think Taylor Swift is incredibly intelligent, obviously a wonderful businesswoman. When she does something, it succeeds. So I don't think she's going to hitch her wagon to Joe Biden. I also personally don't think that Joe Biden is going to be the Democrat nominee. But I think Taylor Swift right now is entering an era where she's winning and she's going to continue to win. So you don't attach yourself to a loser like Joe Biden. I give her more credit than that. And I also think that some of the American conservative hysteria surrounding Taylor Swift, I think it's a little unwarranted. Let the girl live her life. I do think she's actually a pretty good role model for young women. So I say let Taylor live. You know, football fans might be disgruntled, but I think Taylor Swift has a pretty good head on her shoulders. I hope she doesn't prove me wrong. Yeah, she's a great American success story. I, I agree with you. I think she should be celebrated for everything she does. Tommy, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Hope we'll have you back again soon. Tommy Lauren there, uh, Fox News contributor, live from Nashville. Just before uh, we go to the break, I want to bring you some breaking news. Uh, not Nine people have been taken to hospital in South London after a corrosive substance was thrown at them. Metropolitan Police are investigating this. We'll bring you more details on it as soon as we get them. Just to repeat that breaking news, nine people have been hurt after a corrosive substance was thrown. Police said specialist equipment was used to detect a corrosive substance that is believed to have been used in the incident. Three officers who responded to the incident were among those taken to hospital and they were trying to catch a man seen fleeing the scene. This, however, is the oncoming flood that is the independent republic of Mike Graham. We'll be looking to pour water over the insane amount of electric vehicles going bang and the story of a schoolteacher stabbed and begging for help. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I've got a little clip from the Maldives to lighten up your day. And no, it's got nothing to do with sun, sea or sand.
Now, this is one of those pieces of footage where you think, well, maybe our parliament isn't as bad uh, as we all think <laughs> after all, because I do love a parliamentary punch-up from some uh, place abroad. And that happens to be uh, the Maldives. Don't have any, I've no idea what they were arguing about. But I think it was, was it not the Maldives government who said that they were going to all be um, underwater? Uh, at some point or other, if somebody didn't do anything about climate change, did they not film? I think the, the did they not yeah. film a sort of a, a cabinet meeting on the on the floor, floor of, the, of the ocean as a sort of a, a stunt to prove how terrible it was? They're very stern warning that if they don't, the way things are going, that yeah. within forty or fifty years, they, right. the whole thing will be will be underwater. Right. Well, our parliament is crumbling, so maybe they we should well, have a video. Well, I mean, certainly of them in it leaks hats. a lot, doesn't it? It leaks a lot. I mean, making... whenever I go down there, which is not very often, you're there, Ryan, probably every day. Um, you basically have to look out above your head in case there's some, something horrible coming out of the roof. <laughs> it's normally masonry and it's full of mice. <laughs> you, I see mice s several times a day, right. you know, just running around. They don't mind us. They just, you know, get yeah. their own... Well, own rats, practice. sinking ships, all that sort of thing, I dare say. Um, now, um, moving on to a much more concerning incident that happened yesterday in East London. A school teacher was stabbed in the back by a student in an altercation outside Forest Gate community school. The injured teacher was two weeks into his new job, ran into a local pharmacy seeking medical help and was attended to by a physician's associate from a nearby health centre. It's reported that his injuries are fortunately not life-threatening. But, you know, the trouble is, I've got young kids myself and never in a million years would they ever engage in something like this. But what is going on in our schools? Why is there a teenage knife crime epidemic in the capital? And truly, our teachers did not deserve this. And also, of course, this is, at the end of the day, um, yet another episode in what I'm calling Lawless Britain. I mean, we've got some breaking news tonight um, that something's happened in Clapham, I think it is, in that part of South London, um, where somebody has been throwing a corrosive substance. We don't know what it is. don't know whether it's acid or something like that, injuring a load of people. There is a sense, um, and I do go on about this a lot, that there is a kind of lawlessness going on, don't you think? Yeah, I think when it comes to knife crime, you know, is it, does it come from the parents? Does it come mm. from the teachers? Should they be um, just people just talking talking about it more and just trying yeah. to, you know, what, 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 what is the inclination to go around and carry a blade? There was yeah. that rule that was brought in, two strikes and you're out. If mm. you carry a blade twice, you should, yeah, you should whatever go to prison. To mm. it, it's, still, it's still on the statute book, but it seems like judges only occasionally apply it for whatever reason when, they're, when, they're, when they are sentencing. Yeah. Also, there were loopholes. You know, one of the knives that have special logos on, they oh. don't count. OK. Why is that? Well, I think... uh, because they were not necessarily logos, but wording uh -huh. to actually identify this as a kitchen implement right. as opposed to a oh, lethal okay. object. Yeah, because, I mean, like, there was an incident the other day up in North London where a guy tried to attack a Jewish-owned um, business mm. and he appeared to have a knife which looked just like an ordinary kind of it Like a bread knife, knife. yeah. Yeah, it was like a bread knife. And you can't really stop people buying those, can you? Because you can stop them buying the zombie well, knives, but... This is the problem. There's been a huge amount of focus on the sort of... Uh, trying to do a technical fix. So right. Idris Elba comes out and, you know, of, of course, you know, makes a sensible point. Who would want to see these horrendous mm. zombie knives on the street? I have no problem with banning them. Right. They're, they're awful. Um, but that isn't going to stop right. knife crime because what we have to do is take a much more forensic look at why it is that kids are mm. doing this, right. why it is that certain sections of society are doing it. It's, mm. It doesn't tend to be your sort of grammar school going middle class kids that no. are engaged in knife crime. It's people on the poorer end of the spectrum. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a horrible mess of a sort of lack of authority. And I actually think one of the more complicated things is there's a kind of a, a, a sort of bit of a toxic sort of sense of entitlement and 
victim narrative around the way in which we deal with kids who are brandishing knives. Yeah. So often we say, it's not their fault, they're just doing it for security. Or, and you know, that of, we, I can imagine times in which that's true, mm. but it's also the case that we have to start getting harder and saying, if you carry a weapon like yeah. this, if you have it on you, with an, presumably an intent to use it, right. you're guilty and you shouldn't do that. And I also think. to have to draw the parents into that equation mm. as well, mm. to say, are you checking on what yeah. you, your kids have in their bag mm -hmm. when they leave your property? Yeah. That somehow, what is the personal responsibility of the school? What is the personal responsibility yeah. of the teenager with an adolescent brain that mm. is already going through so much flux that they yeah. can't actually take responsibility for very much? But also, what about the parents? And it might not be as well going into school with a knife, but it might be going out with a knife, you know, because I've heard, heard stories, I've got teenage sons, I hear stories from them about, you know, friends of theirs who you might otherwise think are quite well-to-do, but if they go into a part of, um, you know, their neighbourhoods where they expect there might be trouble or they might be jumped by somebody, you know, some of them are starting to carry knives. Yeah. And, you know, it's terrifying. The, the trouble is, how many times have we heard initiatives from governments saying they're going to ban zombie knives? Mm. I think there's, it feels like there's been yeah. half a dozen over, over, the yeah. over the past few years. And I think one of the other issues is every time the government say this is the specification for a zombie knife, the people who are making them change right. it and they go a bit further. Yeah. So every time the government are playing catch up. And you can buy this stuff online. I mean, we did a, a, an investigation, I think, last year at Talk TV where somebody was able to go online without giving any ID, they were asked for ID and they went, oh, I haven't got it at the moment, you know, is that all right? They went, oh, yeah, fine. Mm. Sent the, so I think it was a machete, sent it to an address um, and they and they were able to take delivery of it. And there was no checking, there was no kind of, you know, um, wherewithal for somebody to, to, to step in and say, no, you can't have that. I, I, for all they knew, it was being bought by a 12-year-old. I remember doing an investigation of probably the best part of nearly 15 years ago, yeah. where we had a, a young kid, 12, 13 years old, he had one of those bank cards, so it wasn't a proper debit yeah, card, yeah. but he just had a, a bank card. He went online and bought half a dozen knives. They came to his address. They absolutely yeah. no checks whatsoever. Yeah, shocking stuff. Um, let's move on, though, because there's a shocking story coming to us exclusively from the Talk TV newsroom. We found out that firefighters in London attended an incident involving an e-bike or an e-scooter every other day last year. Our Freedom of Information request revealed that London Fire Brigade tackled a total of 183 fires sparked by battery-powered vehicles in 2023. And that's just in London alone. Um, this is another bugbear of mine. You know, we've had three buses uh, go up in flames in the last sort of two or three weeks in London. Um, you see electric buses now and you wonder what is going to happen and you wonder whether people are going to want to get on it and you wonder whether they're being treated properly or kept properly. You know, some of the buses, I think, were withdrawn from service so they could be checked. But there's an awful lot of what you might call kind of dodgy wiring going on with some of these e-scooters, you know, because you're not really supposed to own e-scooters, but people are buying them surreptitiously, you know, on various different eBay markets and then charging them up with, you know, mm -hmm. you know, unofficial, if you like, charging points and stuff that they bought on the internet. It's really dangerous. Knowing that we were going to be talking about this story, as I came out of the mm. tube, I noticed that there were these big signs everywhere saying, you know, e-scooters and e-bikes are not allowed right. on the underground. And I remember thinking, I wonder if that's partly to do with crowding. No, it is probably because they know that they're so yeah. combustible and you don't want a fire Absolutely. happening anywhere. But you certainly don't want it happening on no, the ground. because, I mean, we've got all those registered scooters that you can hire, which are apparently sort of slightly better monitored, but it's the, un it's the ones that are not for hire which have got, you know, no speed restriction on them. You see people riding them all the time. You can do like 30, 40 miles an hour on them and they can go up in flames. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the fire is one thing and that is that is a problem. It's I, I hate them because, number one, they're completely 
they're like lawless. They're they silent extremely as well. fast. They're yeah. silent. And all everybody from sort of in Hackney, I see middle-aged sort of trendy women and youngsters mm. riding them on the pavement. Yeah. It drives me absolutely yeah. mad. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's one of these weird things which is, you know, as a piece of technology, it can be quite exciting. They're quite nippy. It's good to get around, you know, if you're lazy and you don't want to cycle, all the rest of it. I'm not sort of Luddite about it. But they're a menace. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like, you know, this idyllic world that we would like to create for ourselves. And if you were living in South Beach in Miami, it's a nice way to go up and down Collins Avenue. But, you know, if you're living in LA or, you know, Muscle Beach or somewhere, great. But not in the middle of London, mm. when there's literally no room to walk anywhere, you know. You live in a block of flats and you leave the e-scooter yeah. out in the hallway and before you know it, you wake up on the whole block of flats. Well, we covered a story not that long ago. It was an inquest about a poor old guy who was a, a grandfather who died in a house fire, oh, that's which helpful. was started by an e-scooter or an e-bike, I think it was, that was left inside the door by somebody that lived in his house. Mm. And mm. the thing went out. And because when they do go on fire, it's such a toxic um, and, and awful smoke that emanates from them. And even if they're not on fire, they're just discarded. You, you talk about being on the pavements. It's when people stop using them and they just leave them on the pavement. And near where I am, sometimes you get eight or nine just mm. all clustered on the pavement yeah. if you're blind, if you're or walking Or if you're in a wheelchair dog, or something, yeah. wheelchair or you're trying oh, to it's like, navigate yeah, a pushchair. Horrendous, yeah. absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it needs to be better sort of looked after. Speaking of kids in schools, um, we saw Rishi Sunak with his vaping um, unveiling... The, the most recent thing that he's come up with, which is another law we don't probably need. Um, there's a school uh, which is apparently going to use a sniffer dog to bring the uh, uh, to bring the point to the to the kids in the school because they're going to say, look, we're going to have um, somebody come in with a dog, and if you're found with any vaping uh, um, um, equipment, um, we're going to kick you out of school. So I don't know if that's going to stop them vaping. Where are you on the vaping kids thing? <laughs> um, I, I, the thing is, you can, you can, it's illegal up until the age of. 18. Well, exactly. Anyway, so I mean, if you're an adult, there's, yeah. they actually, that government actually said in, in a government press release, vape, vape should only be used as a way of getting off, getting off smoking. smoking. Yeah. It's like, hang on a minute. If it's, it's either legal or it's not. You, you know, is there a health, you know, predicament or yeah. reason why? I think why? part of the problem is because it's marketed so cannily mm. for children. The colours of the packaging, yeah. the names and the flavours. It's all meant to be very right. enticing, so that you would imagine it's no more severe than something like bubble gum. But it really, yeah. it's hard that actually it could be a gateway, not just because of the product but because of the oral gratification mm. the fact that you start to get used to soothing yourself yeah. by putting something in your mouth yeah and as soon as you start to do that you are actually making it a gateway yeah. to, to I mean, again, cigarettes using my um own children as a, as a as a research tool whenever i speak to them about this stuff they kind of go that now kids are doing it when they're quite young because the, the bubble gum type you know marketing that they do is not really aimed at 17 18 year olds because by then they've grown out of it they're actually aiming it at really young kids, like 13, 14. And that's where it's dangerous, isn't it? Well, but, I mean, the other part... <laughs> I used to work in Hoxton, and the, all the sort of tech bros that were around, they used to stand outside their offices in clouds of sort of vanilla puff. And, you know, they were... And I used to think, for God's sake, what's wrong with you just smoke a cigarette? Yeah. But, there, I mean, this is... It is stuff that adults enjoy. And, you know, I'm all for... Maybe not sniffer dogs, but bag searches and things like that in schools. I mean, there, sh yeah. there should be a total crackdown on that and there should be... I I'm for banning phones in schools and things like that. Yep. Mm. It's a completely I'm for banning rule. phones for kids under the age of 16, yeah. full stop. Well, See, I'm, but, I go the other way on the Adults phones. are different. We should yeah. be allowed to smoke 
weird things and yeah. with bubblegum flavour if we like and yeah. there's none of issues in extra, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, th I think as well, if schools, it's, it's way past time for banning phones. I think that what they should do is actually try and utilise the phone in some way, shape or form with the education. Instead of telling kids you can't bring a phone in and you can't be caught on it or else we're going to take the phone off you, you know, let them use the phone. It's a, it's a, it's a resource. You know, you should actually, no. I think, bring it along. They'll just because they won't. They will literally sit there and watch videos. Well, if you're a decent teacher, you've got command of the class. If you're not, you won't. I think it has to be on a different device. My, I say little girl, she's 12, but I know they're on them all the time. Whether app, WhatsApp or Snapchat, they're always communicating. Yeah, yeah. I think it has to be a separate device. We all are. But, you know, we're all grown-ups. Well, they're not. But, I mean, you know, they can actually lock things out and say, yeah. look, here's a programme, you log into it. But it's not about that, it's do. about the screen time. It's about being able to say that your brain functions in yeah. a different way when you're using a smartphone or a mobile Yeah, phone. but that might have to, to, be able to be able to, But, but no, it, doesn't, it shouldn't. It never it needs shouldn't. to change. If, you, if you're reading Shakespeare in English literature, you do not need to have a smartphone. No, you don't. You need to be able, and if you're doing experiments in biology or chemistry, or if you're learning history, yeah. you do not need a smartphone. Yeah, and I'm it not is saying, about yeah, but this is the thing. I'm not saying, boundaries. But I'm not saying that you do it constantly and you have them constantly on their phones, but what I'm saying is you incorporate it into the day so that you don't have this kind Too of much makes fighting. I don't think so. That's given, you've given up, Mike. You're in the yeah. Republic of Mike Graham. You've forgotten. <laughs> Um, that your your views are of no worth to me whatsoever. You can't convince me of anything else. Absolutely right. Um, finally, uh, before we move on, um, how about a senior NHS anaesthetist who fell into a deep sleep in an operating theatre moments after putting a patient under? Suspended, thank God. I mean, I know that they'll say, well, probably they're not getting enough sleep because they're working so hard, but, you know, it's not really a good look, is it? Your anaesthetist appears to have fallen asleep. What if there was a problem? Exactly. It seems like this guy was just like, falling asleep in the, in the chair and, it, you know, it possibly happened before. So, I mean, it's yeah. pretty... I mean, if you're that tired, you probably concerning. should leave the operating Yeah, I, don't, I, I wonder whether it was actually narcolepsy, that actually we're really not talking about just common or garden tiredness, but someone who's got an actual condition. Because if you read the story, it's very much about how even when he was woken up, and it took them a very long time to prod him awake, that actually he was very disorientated, that his trousers were coming down. I mean, yeah. it, the whole picture is of someone who isn't really functioning very well. No. So it's probably But he has more... been suspended, so I assume they yeah, well, that's into good. It. I, if I was the person who'd mm. been put under by that anaesthetist, yeah. I would want him to... I mean, he might have other problems, but, I mean, it's clear that, that they're not feeling sorry for him, whatever it is. Mm. Um, they're actually going, well, you can't do that anymore, so we're going to have to well, take you Well, hopefully they're asking him to get treatment yeah. as well. That would mm. be good. Yes, there may have been other substances involved, maybe been taking enough of his own anaesthetic. Who can say? <laughs> Let's just check if this works. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Now, um, this is the bullish Abataram, uh, that is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Next, we're going to look at a new housing project touted as a dream home but it's already played in building site issues and bureaucracy. Plus, we're going to have a look at all the papers tomorrow morning and all the big stories on the front pages. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Now, just imagine the scene. Two picturesque English villages in the rural idyll of Hampshire with roads lined by well-kept hedges, beautiful trees separated by green space where birdsong is the loudest sound you'll ever hear. Now imagine the crunching roar of excavators, the hum of diggers, the clouds of dust and the exhaust fumes from so many industrial-scale lorries driving up and down because this is the reality for the residents of Knoll and Wickham who are having to deal with the 1,000-acre plot between their two communities, which is being turned into a giant 
building site. The £308 million Wellborn project has finally been given the go-ahead after 20 years of negotiations, and the natives are most definitely revolting. The reason is pretty clear. The project, which has now been nicknamed Hellborn, aims to build between six and 10,000 high-density homes. And the bad news is that the place will effectively be a building site for the best part of the next 30 years. Despite continual objections from local people, the view is now that the project cannot be stopped. And as a result, developers will now destroy up to 200 trees and they'll rip up thousands of shrubs. And that's just phase one. The aim of the developers is to create a new town that, in their words, will look as good in 100 years as it will in 50. And the concrete jungle will serve as a residential town midway between Portsmouth and Southampton. At this rate, it might only serve as a battleground for the fans of those two rival football teams. The irony of the development in Rao, though, is that this development project and the building of it is supposed to be environmentally friendly. It's going to feature some of Britain's most eco-friendly homes, powered by a solar farm and a cutting-edge underground heating network that uses heat pumps and taps into a nearby reservoir. So it's actually a woke concrete jungle, and it's literally growing out of the ground. To make matters worse, local residents are worried that thousands of nesting birds will be affected and possibly even wiped out by all the industrial works going on. Environmentally friendly, it ain't. Lorraine Rapp, who chairs the Knoll Residents Association, said this, there's no stopping it, but it's a shame they've started destroying what was already there unnecessarily. It was always said that when you drive into Knoll, you feel like you're in your own little village. And now that rural road, lined by greenery, will be changed completely, as it's now going to be hemmed in by these new houses. For now, though, it's just a dusty, noisy, barren, ghastly eco-horror. And that is the world of woke in a nutshell. The world of woke. So, let's look at some of the papers uh, and see what stories they've got in them. And there's a terrible story on the front page of the Daily Mail. Uh, Ryan, I don't know if you know this guy, Mike Freer, but he's the uh, Tory MP who was the victim of an arson attack not that long ago um, because of his, pro, uh, um, his pro-Israeli views. He's basically saying that he's quitting frontline politics because he can't, he can't put his family through death threats and intimidation. It's a shocking I mean, story. I mean, Mike Freer, Justice Minister, has really been... He's been through it the, the last few years or so. He, it's, now he has escaped a, a confrontation with the killer of, of, of David Amos as he recently had the arson attack in his yeah. office. And it, it brings it home. It was what, you know, MPs take a lot of criticism, but what it does bring home is the fact that, you know, they, they have to put up with a hell of a lot. A lot of them have got yeah. panic alarms, security right. alarms in their house. And also brings into question what type of people do we want to try and to attract into public life? Yeah. Um, if you are only, if, if it's if it's such a um, a burden on people and their families to go in, into a job like being an MP or even a, a council level, um, it's sort of, you do worry about the, the quality of people who are going to serve in those roles. Mm. It is awful. Lance Foreman, who's a guy that I know well, former MEP, um, is his he's his local MP, and he said tonight uh, on Twitter, "My local MP is stepping down after intimidation threats to his safety because he stood shoulder to shoulder with his large Jewish constituency. This is a disgusting stain." on the state of British democracy because the police have failed to stop it and the courts haven't stamped it out. I think that's right. Mm. And actually, he's had to resort to wearing a stab vest to go and see his constituents. Uh, but again, why, why aren't the police giving him more protection? Yeah. Why aren't they giving him more reassurance that actually he is safe? Right. He obviously doesn't feel safe and that's why he's stepping down. And he has good reason because, as I say, his, his, uh, his, I think it was one of his um, outbuildings or a shed or something in his, or his garage was set on fire mm. as yeah. a direct result of something that he had said about Israel.
There was a report released by the Joe Cox Foundation last week, um, which was about intimidation and abuse in politics, particularly of politicians. Mm. There were two glaring omissions in it. It made no mention of um, Rosie Duffield or gender critical yeah. views um, and the abuse and intimidation that she and other MPs have faced. And it did not mention the word anti-Semitism once really? in it. it. There was note that I did control find. I read the whole thing. The word Jew or anything related to that was not mentioned once. It is such an unbelievable mm. blind spot yeah. in politics at the moment. Um, with a horrendous rise of anti-Semitism <laughs> seemingly going sort of uh, uh, under the radar um, for far too long. Yeah. And it is incredible that he, having having literally escaped death at the hands of Ali Haber Ali, mm. is now having to quit his job yeah. because he is, he is being, his life is being threatened. No, it's yeah. absolutely awful. Absolutely awful. Um, Telegraph goes with an Alan Bates story uh, following up from that post office scandal. He's turned down what he calls a derisory payment um, from the uh, from the government, right? Uh, they've apparently tried to come up with a way of dealing with all of this um, compensation and the claims that are having to be put together. But they seem to be making a bit of a hash of it. Yeah, if, if you're a, in the government, I know, you know, Postal Office um, Minister Kevin Hollingrake he seems to have done a, a pretty steady job on this. I think, you, you know, him and the government should go back to the drawing board on this. If there's one person you don't want to annoy, it's probably Alan Bates on this. Yeah. Um, you, you do wonder whether this is the first offer, this is part of a sort of long negotiation, but the government really don't want this bad publicity. Look, look at the, the, the sort of em, the emotional pull of that um, ITV uh, drama, and this is the, not the sort of people that you kind of want to... You know, the public are totally, totally on their side. And Alan Bates, in this, in, in one of the quotes here, said that um, several other sub-postmasters have also had pretty derisory offers as well. Yeah. But the problem is that the claimants were awarded by the High Court, 58 mm. million. Right. But after legal costs, yes. that had shrunk to 12 million. So actually, it's not even actually just the government's fault. There is a, a really iniquitous idea that the, the lawyers have been far too greedy on yeah. this one. Mm -hmm. Oh, they have. I mean, the lawyers are making a lot of money on both sides. Don't forget all the money that uh, the post office spent on lawyers as well mm -hmm. to try and keep all of this out of the courts. But what Alan Bates says is that he finally received an offer at 4.59pm um, today, 11, 111 days after he had submitted his claim, and he was offered around a sixth of what he'd claimed for. Mm -hmm. They can't nickel and dime it, surely, to heavens. And, I mean, what they should be doing as well is going after... Um, Horizon and going after Fujitsu, Fujitsu. for the money because Make we shouldn't be paying it. I mean, as much as I'd like to see them getting compensation, I don't particularly want to bankroll it, well, you I mean, know, as a taxpayer. If yeah. you were one of these families who, I mean, either had your family member, you know, lose their life through suicide yeah. um, because of what had happened or have been ostracised, all these horrendous stories, and you had a decision between making the government happy by just making it all go away quickly and taking the little pittance yeah. and shutting up, or having pushing for it and having your day in court and revealing yes. the kind of damage that had been done to not just you, but your daughter, your son, your mother and all the rest of it. And that costs a lot of Why money. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. but it does cost a lot of money, you know, for people to go to court and to, you know, to try and make sure that they're going to be OK without knowing that they won't be handed a huge legal bill at the end of it. Very difficult. Kevin um, Badenocker at the weekend said that she had spoken or written to the, the, the overall boss of Fujitsu. I mean, yeah. she, she, if I was her, you want to get out on the plane and see him and make sure yeah. he wrote the check. Yeah, doorstep the guy, absolutely right. Um, we've got a sub-postmistress actually on the show uh, tomorrow night. So Janet Skinner is her name. So we'll find out what she's been offered if they're starting to offer things to people. Um, here's somebody who's been offered something. Front page of The Sun. Uh, ITV is trying to poach Claudia Winkleman. Is she a traitor?
is the question. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't watch The Traitor. I don't watch these kind of shows that everybody else watches, partly because I don't really have time, but also because I can't stand this kind of group um, ideology that you have to sort of all talk about it. But um, apparently, by all accounts, it was a great show. Um, will she move? Would she go? I think she's going to get the best of both worlds here. She's got um, some sort. Of, she's obviously got a decent, a very good deal with the BBC yeah. to present Strictly and and Traitor and Traitors. And also, on the other hand, it looks like she'll be given a couple, maybe a one-off gig to do a quiz show or something on, yeah, on ITV. Yeah, I do wonder as well with all the arguments going on about the BBC license fee now whether they should go. Well, hang, hang on a minute. You know, we can't afford it. If ITV offer a millions and millions to go to a commercial organisation, perhaps the BBC shouldn't match it. Well, well, do use it to top up her money. Yeah, Maybe. but but the point is, is yeah. that you know we shouldn't be in the business of paying huge amounts of money to stars and celebrities because that's not what the BBC is meant to be. Well, for. it's interesting the BBC can't claim exclusivity really anymore in the realm of entertainment. It, yeah. You know, it, if it ever did, it can't have those star names that are loyal that are because I mean, actually, as some of the papers go into um, in, on other shows, it has screwed over a lot of its talent, whether it's exactly yeah. getting rid of Sue Barker and yeah. people. And so it's made a lot of bad decisions. It has. That if you were Winkleman, you'd think, well, hedge my bets, right. take a few mm. hundred thousand from ITV. And she can probably name her price, not least because uh, it turns out that on the ITV schedule, mm. most of the shows are fronted by men. Yeah. And she would be one of the very few women who would actually be actually commanding that kind of position. Yeah. So she can name her price. Yeah, mm. absolutely right. Well, we shall see. Um, finally, I'm just going to leave you with this one. Apparently, the civil service are being taught that uh, microaggression uh, is actually something like rolling your eyes. So don't roll your eyes at anybody, apparently. I don't really do that. But um, if you do, you have to stop because it's not very fair on anybody. But thank you very much indeed to everybody. Um, we haven't got any Guinness to finish the show with tonight, unfortunately. It should have been here last night. But that's all for tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Thank you to everybody that uh, was on the show tonight. Tomorrow, we will bring you, as I said, the latest from the post office scandal that Alan Bates offer. We'll be speaking to those at the heart of the story. You will not want to miss it. Good night. <laughs>